Hello, friends. It's a new year. It's 2020. It's Kara Snyder here, your host and salonier. And we are in La Vital Core Salon, a place for women who don't have time for bullshit or burnout to stop them. Today, I want you to meet Leah Penniman. Leah is a black Creole educator, farmer, author, and food justice activist from Soul Fire Farm in Grafton, New York. She co-founded Soul Fire Farm in 2010 with the mission to end racism in the food system and reclaim the ancestral connection to land for people of color. As co-executive director, Leah is part of a team that facilitates powerful food sovereignty programs, including farmer training for black and brown people, a subsidized farm food distribution program for communities living under a food apartheid, and domestic and international organizing toward equity in the food system. Leah's been farming since 1996, but holds a lot of academic cred as well. She holds an MA in science education and a BA in environmental science and international development from Clark University. And she's a queen mother in Vodun. The work of Leah and Soul Fire Farm has been recognized by a growing list of national organizations. Her book, Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farm's practical guide to liberation on the land is a love song for the land and her people. I can't recommend the book enough. Please grab a copy. Admittedly, I sometimes fear talking about racism in a public forum like this podcast. I'm conscious of my own incompetence and white privilege, and I'm afraid to just get it wrong. And after listening back, I want to acknowledge some of my own gaps in this conversation and how Leah demonstrated what a graceful teacher she is. I share that because I'm trying to lean in, learn more, and do better on the regular. And if you're listening, I hope you are too. There's a lot to learn in this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Enjoy learning. Enjoy this episode. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and share it with one human you know. Voila! Meet Leah. Leah, welcome to La Vital Core Salon. I'm so stoked you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled. So I want to dive right in because I know our time is so precious today. How did you find farming initially and how did you come to start Soul Fire Farm? Well, farming really found me quite by accident. I mean, I certainly was a nature-connected child. You know, as one of the only brown kids in my whole town, I experienced a lot of bullying and aggression and discrimination. And so the forest was my friend. The forest was always kind to me. So I knew when I was finally a teenager, ready to have my first job, I wanted to do something in service of the earth. And farming was what paid. Uh, And I had no idea that I would completely fall in love with the satisfaction of hoeing a row of carrots clean or having the scent of cilantro cling to my skin after harvesting. And, you know, I've been farming, that's, that was 23 years ago. Uh, and I came to start Soul Fire Farm because I, I wanted to be able to share the magic of that connection and that meaning with others in my community. So what was that like for you when you first discovered that connection I can't picture a lot of kids that I went to school with, like just finding such a deep and visceral connection. Well, here's the thing, you know, I think in modern society, there's so many things you can do with your time 
that are of dubious meaning. I mean, do we really know if tweeting has deep value for the future of humanity? You know, do we really know, um, even if delivering parcels for UPS, like what is the long-term impact of that? And there was something about farming in my confused teenage years that was so undeniably good and valuable. Like nobody can say that growing food and feeding the community is not absolutely essential to the survival of humankind, right? And I needed that. I needed to be able to contribute to something that was real work and meaningful work. Um, and I think that was really the initial hook, as well as the fact that it's one of the few places where you get to really rock with the earth as well as people. <laughs> so you can care about social justice and the planet at the same time, when so often those are really siloed uh, experiences. Yes. When did you first notice, like, hey, I'm one of the only brown kids farming? Well, I mean, the food project was pretty unique because it was super diverse. You know, there were urban and rural kids, black, brown, white, Asian kids. And I sort of, you know, naively assumed that that's just what farming would be like. So when I went on to work at private commercial farms across the Northeast and deepened my skills, uh, you know, at first I didn't noticed too much that everyone was white around me. But after a few years of it being the same thing and every single conference I went to was almost all white and all the books I was reading were written by white authors, I became a little confused and disillusioned. I thought maybe I missed the memo on what black folks are supposed to do. Maybe I was a race trader. I should, you know, work on housing discrimination or gun violence or something more relevant, I thought, to my people. And I almost quit farming because of, um, you know, those doubts. And it wasn't until I met uh, my mentor, um, who's now a board member at Soulfire, her name is Karen Washington. She's a black farmer um, in Hudson Valley, New York. And she said, you know, hang in there. Our people have a very long dignified relationship with the land. And just because it's not being reflected in these spaces doesn't mean it's not real. And I started doing research about black agrarianism and food justice and, and saw that, that she was right. And that's, what, that's what's really kept me going. What are some of the things that you found as you started to figure out what the real connection for people of color to the land was? Well, here's the thing. Like most folks certainly know that the reason that black people are here in this country by and large is because 12 million of us were kidnapped to do unpaid labor and build the agricultural system of the U.S. And then that kind of morphed into sharecropping and convict leasing and all these other land-based oppressions. So that's pretty well known. What I discovered that a lot of folks don't know is that, you know, simultaneously and also before that, you know, Black people were contributing almost all of the technologies that we now consider foundational for sustainable farming. Things like cover cropping, raised beds, uh, compost, rotational grazing. Like the first documented use of compost goes back to Cleopatra in 59 BCE. She was uh, using worms to create fertile soils all across the Nile River Delta. And that was how you know, she fed her kingdom. And so that and many other stories provided a different uh, view for me about the role of Black folks in sustainable farming. If people listening want to begin to understand that history, I feel like your book does an amazing job of bringing in pieces of it and resources. Are there books or resources oh, that really come to <laughs> It was amazing. Like, Leah, it like turned so many things like upside down and sideways for me, but like in all the best ways, like things that I had no idea were connected. I was like, whoa, just even reading the sidebars in the book, you know, about the history or all of these amazing organizations across the United States and the world doing 
this deeply powerful work. It's, it's amazing. Oh, thank you. And I mean, I wrote that book because there weren't books. So I was looking for the book or, or the compilation of articles <laughs> that explained the positive aspects of black farming and, you know, what is our history? What have been our contributions? And they didn't exist. Um, and Toni Morrison, you know, she said that if there is a book that you need to read that hasn't been written, go and write it. And so that's what Farming While Black is. You know, since then, a number of other books have come out that I'm really excited about. Uh, for example, uh, Dr. Monica White wrote uh, Freedom Farmers, which is about the history of farming co-ops in the United States. Uh, there's a book called Black Food Geographies by Dr. Ashanti Reese, uh, which has to do with food justice and, and a few others. And so I'm really excited that we almost have a bookshelf of positive <laughs> about black farming, but not quite. There's, there's going to need to be you know, a few more to fill out that shelf. Are there other topics, if there are women listening, that are like, I need to intersect with this. I need to help get the word out. I need to do the work. Are there topics that you're coming across that people aren't writing about that are adjacent to what you're doing? Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I'm excited to write about, if, if nobody else does, then please feel free, is this idea of land return. Um, so most folks probably know that almost this entire continent was stolen through genocidal action against indigenous people. And there's a movement right now to figure out how to return that land to indigenous people and also to other communities that have had their land stolen. You know, for example, the black community has, a, has had over 12 million acres of farmland taken through government discrimination and KKK violence and so forth. And this movement of land trusts and reparations gifts and so forth is not uh, nearly talked about enough. And I think certainly warrants a, a book and so that we can get these strategies spread out and get people excited about participating. So hopefully people listening can run with that idea. <laughs> <laughs> But Leah, I want to I wanna circle back to make sure that people listening also really understand that Soulfire Farm is a farm in the traditional sense and like 10,000 more things on top of that. <laughs> Can you talk about what makes your approach to farming so different and then some of the things that have, have sprung up from that soil well beyond farming? Absolutely. For sure. So yes, we are a farm in the real sense. Um, there are eight of us who are part of this collective. We steward 80 acres of land in historically Mohican territory, which is upstate New York. And we're dedicated to ending racism in the food system, which is pretty ambitious. So there's, there's three main things we do. The first is uh, we use Afro-Indigenous regenerative farming practices. So things like raised beds and cover crops and pollinator habitat, heirloom seeds, all of that to have a carbon neutral, biodiversity rich farm. And then the food that comes out of it goes at no or low cost to people who are most at risk in our community, refugees, incarcerated people, folks of color um, living under food apartheid. So that takes up most of our time. Because if anyone's ever farmed, you know it's a, a lot of hard real work. But then on top of it, we are training centers. So we have a few thousand people come through every year to learn about farming, uh, usually for these week-long courses that are called Farmers Immersions. Uh, they're designed for Black and Indigenous people to learn how to make a life and make a living on land. And we, you know, once folks graduate, we provide mentorship and support with getting them set up with land and jobs. And then the final, third and final thing that we do is organize because the food system to be super honest, is inherently racist. Um, farm workers are not treated well. 
the land is not fairly distributed, the food is not fairly distributed, and that's because of policy. So we're working to change policy and we're working on a nationwide reparations project to get land returned to people. And so that takes a chunk of time as well. Oh yeah, we're busy. (laughs) (laughs) But now that I like hear and understand the gravity of how much you're doing, I'm extra appreciative of having even one hour of your time because the work that you're doing outside of this is just mind-blowing to me. Oh, thank you. Well, it's an honor to get to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) So I have so many more questions because I think you, you dropped some really important nuggets as you were talking about sort of the three veins of Soul Fire Farm being the farming itself, the teaching, and the organizing and, and policy work. So I think you mm-hmm. mentioned a certain term, food apartheid. And I feel like mm-hmm. coming from years in health coaching, I've often heard the term food desert. Are they the same or do you see those as different terms? That's such a good question. So in some ways they are the same, right? The government came up with the term food desert to refer to a zip code where people are low income and there aren't a lot of grocery stores. Um, the problem with the term desert is that it implies something natural. And also something inevitable. And the fact that if you're white in this country, you're four times as likely to have a supermarket in your neighborhood than a black person, or that if you're black or indigenous, you're much more likely to have diabetes, kidney failure, and heart disease. That's not natural or inevitable. That's very much because of a whole history of housing segregation, divestment from communities, um, structural racism. That's why we call it apartheid. Because apartheid is, is that human-created you know, system of separation and unfairness, which can also be undone. Ah, got it. Thank you for that. I know it, I, you know, I was wondering, is this like a totally semantic question or is this actually a bigger question? And I, I really appreciate your insight. Oh, thanks. And I, I think I also want to note something that, that I took away from the book was when you started Soul Fire Farm, it was not an easy task. I don't think starting a farm in any way, shape, or form is a task, but something that really struck me was you actually had to make the soil healthy and usable again. This wasn't just like a parcel of land that you just like ro- rolled up and began farming and threw down seeds, and that was, that was how it, it, it all happened. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, in some ways we were naive. I don't know if I would do it all over again, but here's the thing. We were young. We're not independently wealthy. Uh, We didn't have a lot of money saved or high incomes. And so we got the land we could afford. Um, And out here, this land of this quality, which is quite low quality as far as farmland goes, is about $2,000 an acre. So we said, you know, sure, sign us up. And we ended up having to apply a lot of the techniques we learned in urban spaces when we were dealing with toxic lead contaminated lots where you build up instead of digging down and add a ton of phosphate rich compost. And it took us mm, three or four seasons in order to get the soil to a place where it could bring forth vegetables and fruits and other crops that look like the people, you know, lucky to know. And how does that change or impact your relationship with that land? I love that. I feel very this land. I mean, it's like I look at, so right now I'm inside of this home, right, that our family built. It took us also four years to build this house out of materials from the land. It's a timber frame, straw bale, um, natural plasters. And I can see like the fingerprints of my children 
in the plaster because they help. Like I can feel the love of my partner in the pegs that, that he pounded in. And, you know, I'm looking out the window at these soils that we've built up and I know the places where the water pools and I know the places that, you know, are best for blueberries and, you know, not so great for kale because there's an intimacy and there's a, I don't know. I, we talk about it a lot. This is a little vulgar, but we talk about it a lot in terms of like the, we know the land like one knows a lover's body. And so there's also that really deep connection for the earth here. Leah, I've seen all the pictures in your book and some of the ones you sent me for the podcast. And like, it just looks like you're standing on the ground, but I have to wonder because I have never seen you in action. I imagine like if, if you pick up your feet, that there's like a root system that extends up, like attaching you to the ground. (laughs) It's such an amazing visual. Like as I'm sitting here listening to you and hearing about like the depth of that connection and what that means. I love that idea of roots growing our feet. I think (laughs) I'll make that part of my meditation. (laughs) It's yours. Have at it. (laughs) Thank you. So I, I, I think also let's talk about the teaching and the, the organizing. Do you mind if I read a quick passage from your book that oh, I ahead. found was like really important? And I'd, I'd love to, to sort of talk about it after. So this is from Farming While Black. Racism is built into the DNA of the U.S. food system, beginning with the genocidal land theft from indigenous people, continuing with the kidnapping of our ancestors from the shores of West Africa, for forced agricultural labor, morphing into convict leasing, expanding to the migrant guest worker program, and maturing into its current state where farm management is among the whitest professions, farm labor is predominantly brown and exploited, and people of color disproportionately live in food apartheid neighborhoods and suffer from diet-related illness. The system is built on stolen land and stolen labor and needs a redesign. I feel like when I read that paragraph, I've never seen it pulled together so succinctly and so profoundly in a way that can be easily understood. And I I felt like it was important to share for people listening who might not understand that history and understand all of the downstream repercussions of that. Hmm. And I, I feel like that is where your work is centered correct? Absolutely. I mean, so I'm a biology teacher also, so I think a lot in terms of metaphors, sciencey metaphors. So I do envision the food system as having DNA. And, you know, those foundational structures are what determines the expression in this day and age. And so the fact that the land that we eat off is, it's all stolen land. And the labor that, that brings the food to our plates is almost all exploited labor to this date. You know, the the Fair Labor um, Standards Act still has not been updated to protect farm workers. So 85% of the, the hands that bring the food to us are, are done by black and brown folks, um, most of whom who speak Spanish, are not making minimum wage, are not experiencing the right to unionize or have overtime pay or even have one day off in seven. And, and the entire food system would collapse if it was not for that exploited labor and, 
and that stolen land. And, and I don't think we've really let ourselves reckon with that as a country and what it would mean to, to truly build justice into the system. I know there are so many ways that you're doing this work and pushing for policy change. I guess for people listening here and for some of them that truly they may be, this may be the first time that they're even being presented with what they might deem an alternative history, right? Like Mm that this isn't what's taught in schools for a lot of people. What can be done? How do we go to the grocery store and make better decisions? Is it in the grocery store? I guess I'd love to hear Mm -hmm. your thoughts about like what sort of grassroots changes people new to this can begin with. I love that question. And I think so often we think about our consumer dollars as the, the primary way that we can make change. And it's not to say that isn't important. Certainly, you know, all of us could do better to support Black-owned farms. We could do better to purchase food from farms that are certified uh, food justice by the Agricultural Justice Project, meaning that farm workers are treated right. But that's going to make you know, incremental or niche change. And if we need whole system change, which we do, we have to really be looking at, at policy. And so we worked super hard. We interviewed over 500 um, black and brown farming organizations to see what policies need to change, built a whole platform. And we've been working actively with the Warren campaign, with the Sanders campaign, um, with other politicians to try to center these priorities. And so, for example, some things that are on that platform include the Fairness for Farm Workers Act, which would give farm workers equal rights to all other American workers. Um, there's an HR 40 bill to begin a reparations process. There's a proposal for a moratorium on the government seizing black land uh, for defaults on, on farm loans. So there's like, you know, so many things that can be done. And I think that folks getting involved in civic life and really pressuring uh, politicians to center the needs of farmers and the food system is crucial. And then finally, you know, we created a reparations map, which is a super fun, like people to people way to make change. Uh, It's on our website. And the reparations map has a list of around 100 black and brown farming projects. And you can go on there and see what they need. Maybe it's a volunteer to help with their website or some land or a tractor, but folks can give resources directly to these front lines, you know, earth activist organizers without any bureaucracy in between. And so that's a, that's a fun way to help too. That's an amazing resource. And the, and the fact that it sounds like people are able to give what they're good at, right? Like you're good at farming, Mm -hmm. you're good at at community building, you're good at, Mm -hmm. you're good at policy reform. And really, it sounds like uniting people. Like I think of the forward of your book and Karen Washington talking about, you know, how you were at a, I believe it was a farm association conference. And you walked around like handing people of color, like a note that's like, hey, we're meeting in this other room. (laughs) Right? Like, (laughs) yes. (laughs) But it's, it's amazing to hear like that people can give in the way that they're talented and know how to give too. Absolutely. And so my daughter, Nishima, who's 16, she talks about the food system as everything it takes to get sunshine onto your plate, which I love. It's a beautiful (laughs) metaphor, but also points to the fact that there are many, many points of intervention in the food system because it is such a vast and broad 
you know, area of interest. And so folks can get involved. Many of us are policy people. That's why we can get involved. Others might be gardeners or community organizers or tech people. There's sort of something for everyone in terms of how to heal and repair the food system. And can you talk a little bit more about reparations? Because I feel like for some listening, that might also be a very new term. Yes, it can be new. And for some people, scary. And huge. (laughs) Um, my, one of my mentors, Ed Whitfield of the Southern Reparations Loan Fund tells this great story, um, that breaks it down. So he says, imagine your neighbor stole your cow. Everybody saw him do it. There's no question it happened. And a couple of weeks later, this neighbor comes over to your house with tears in his eyes and remorse in his heart saying, you know, I'm so sorry that I stole your cow. It was wrong. I want to make it up to you. So every week, for the rest of the cow's life, I'm going to bring you half a pound of butter. What would your response be? I think like one, I can't even picture in this day and age and the culture that we're becoming, like a possibility where that can even happen. So like that feels damn near miraculous to me already. And then, and then also like so many other feels at the same time, right? Like, I don't know if you can tell this about me, but I'm a, a pretty curious cat and critical thinker by nature. So I feel like it already gives me like a thousand questions log jamming into my head. And that's not to be evasive, but I'm like, yeah. what are the, what are their intentions? Like, is this for real? <laughs> yeah. So they stole your cow. They want to give you butter back. Most people would say, I would want my cow back, not the butter. Like you took my cow. And so what the United States is doing right now in regards to land theft and slavery and Jim Crow is to consider giving a little pat of butter here and there. You know, Georgetown University is saying, oh, well, let some students in for free, um, you know, if they meet these criteria or people who can prove that they survived the Rosewood massacre, we'll give them a little here or there. But fundamentally, we haven't looked at the whole big picture. Um, there are many different calculations of what's owed to black people, for example, because of unpaid wages. It's at least $6 trillion, possibly $20 trillion, depending on how you count it. The land theft from black people alone is about $200 billion. And so there's, and there are real consequences to this. It's not like it happened in the past. And now it's all well and good. You know, today- it's perpetuated. Yeah, a white child born today is 16 times wealthier than a black child born today. And it's not because they did extra work in the womb or like managed their investment before they were born, <laughs> right? It's because of inheritance. And almost all of that wealth is traceable back to slavery and land theft. And so we can't pretend like history didn't happen. Um, there's no way we'll ever have equality in this country without giving back at least a portion of what's been taken from communities. Got it. And the example you shared is is so brilliant. And I mean, I'm experiencing the confusion as we're talking, you know, where I think I'm running it through all these filters, like what's the compassionate thing to do? What's the, I, I feel like for me personally, I'm, I'm constantly in a conversation with what is faith, right? Like mm-hmm. having walked away from Catholicism when I was a late teenager, just because I was seeing some things that didn't make sense. And hmm. You know, sometimes it's a struggle because I'm like, how do I be kind? What is the right thing to do in this? Like, what's a step forward? What's not enough step forward, right? You know, like it it brings up so many questions. Yeah, and Cornel West talks about, so Cornel West says, justice is what love looks like in public. And so your framing of kindness makes me think a lot about that too. Like, what is really kindness? 
it's more, I think, than a smile or a tender touch. It's figuring out as a society, how do we create the conditions so that everyone can be well? That's a deeper kindness or a deeper love and justice is part of that. And recognizing that there is, you're going to have to get uncomfortable to really see people and see a situation start being okay with like, and, and especially as a, as a white woman, I mean, like really get used to being uncomfortable. Like this should make you uncomfortable. This should bring up a lot of feels, but like it's on us to do some of that work, right? Like to not put that load on anyone else. Like we have to, we have to reconcile with it Mm -hmm. and really take some action and take some steps. Absolutely. And I guess like part of the reason I wanted to talk to you and I, I think you've, you're already have shared so many things. It's like, like how to make it actionable, like start doing something, stop the, the, like, you know, the wringing of hands and standing there going, Oh, what should I do? What should I do? Like start, even if it's small, do something (laughs) for the love of God, do something. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And you know, when I think about, small actions toward food sovereignty. The probably the smallest and most beautiful one I ever witnessed was when my sister Naeem and I were traveling to Haiti, which is our maternal homeland, our mother's Haitian. And we were doing some work with farmers after the earthquake. We get to the place we're staying and Naima takes out a little glass jar and puts some seeds in it and some water. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> She's like, oh, I'm making sprouts. Like, her bedside. I'm making spreads because everywhere I go, I have to, you know, have green and grow something. And I was thinking, wow, you know, <laughs> <laughs> even in the like, disaster zone earthquake situation, my sister's making a garden. Um, so it made me, it just reminded me of how, like beautiful small actions can be. <laughs> that is amazing. I love that story. There's so much hope in it, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I guess one of the questions that I have for you, especially in light of hearing not only the multitude of issues that you are taking head on. And I mean, again, I haven't seen you in person, but like in my mind, I'm thinking she has to be about like eight and a half feet tall to kind of carry all of this <laughs> on her back. But then I see pictures in, with you in proportion to other people and you do not appear to be over eight feet tall. And I guess it makes me think like... <laughs> How, when it seems so easy to succumb to not only the multitude of issues that you're trying to tackle, but also the size and the systemic nature of them, like, what fuels you? Like, how do you not burn out? Oh, to be real, I know this podcast is about not burning out, but I'm super burnt out. So oh, no, no, <laughs> no. It's about stepping off the pedestal and, and owning it. So, like, I, what is your experience with burnout? Because we know you're, we know you're mired in bullshit. But like, what, <laughs> what's your experience with burnout? I mean, it's so pervasive. Here's um, uh, where I even start. I mean, so first of all, there's the quantity of work. I mean, obviously, we're trying to solve a huge problem, which is racism in the food system, which is connected to everything, and the need is endless. So there are three of us who even look at the email and phone inbox, and we're responding to 400 messages a day, all of whom are people who are worthy of attention. You know, farmers across the country who want advice, people about to lose their land, um, politicians who want to correct their policy to support us. You know, so, and it's not as easy as just making a bigger and bigger team. It's a really, um, a lot of expertise 
and experience is required to like navigate well in this field. So there's volume, but then there's also the weird thing that happens with what I call the hero industrial complex where people start treating you, you know, once you're in leadership, stop treating you like a person and start treating you like an idea. And so there's a lot of, um, a lot of ways that the pedestal can be a really lonely and strange place with very unrealistic expectations about what, you know, I or we can offer. You know, for example, some people want to come, will want to come work here at Soulfire, not because they want to do the job, but because they have some fantasy around being saved, healed, or mentored by me or someone else on the team. That's super weird. <laughs> uh-huh. I can relate. I, I felt like in a very tiny way, like when I was coaching women, there was this notion that everything in my life went totally normal and I handled it to the best of my ability and always from a place of love and compassion perfectly every day. And that was, I had a lot of conversations over 10 years about, do not make me a guru. Like when people like started, when someone quoted me for the first time, I was like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> like you have to understand that I am truly immortal here. Mm-hmm. How have you managed that and, and how has it impacted you? I mean, I feel like I'm just learning how to manage it. I think it was a few years ago when some of our work started reaching national prominence that I was experiencing. And I reached out to other women um, in that position. For example, I have a friend who was the vice presidential candidate for the Green Party. So I asked her about that. And she gave me some advice um, in terms of having an inner circle of no more than 10 trust confidants. You bounce ideas off them, you get their advice, you accept their critique. But then really building, you know, a wall around that circle to protect yourself from the expectations, critique, wishes, longing of, of other folks. And that was how to survive. So that, that was really interesting advice. I also, next weekend, I'm having, you know, that council of, of 10 trusted people over to do some life envisioning because I'm at a point where I really, you know, I'm working 70 to 80 hour weeks, even after I've had intentions for years to pay the hours, it just doesn't seem to happen. Um, so I'm going to get some good minds together with me and really map out how the time's being spent and what can we cut knowing that that cutting is painful, but really necessary if I am to survive and the work is to survive. Yeah. I mean, and what you're about to tackle next weekend is no easy feat. Like I've had a decade worth of private conversations with women around that very thing, wanting to lasso the moon, but then having to make the hard choices of like, and it's not that it doesn't matter. It just, it's not sustainable, right? Like, Right. You know, there's a teaching uh, in Pirkei Avot, which is a, a Jewish sacred text that says, um, you know, while you are not obligated to complete the task, neither are you free to desist from it. And it's something I have to like keep calling back into mind that it's not up to us to do the whole thing. Like we need to march forward in the right direction, but we can't, you know, because then we collapse and that doesn't serve us or anybody else. Have you ever burned out, whether that be physically, emotionally, spiritually, or otherwise to the point where it's stopped you from doing the work? And how did you get back moving again? Yeah, it's so interesting. I think the the definition of like a disability is something that is essentially so bad that you can't work, which is a tricky one for me because my work ethic and compulsion are so strong that it will overcome atypical obstacles, let's say. But yes, I have. I've worked myself to the point of having 
you know, a multi-drug resistant staph infection and 104 degree fever and, you know, insomnia and paresthesia and, you know, all kinds of physical oh, ailments where it's not really possible oh. to get up for a day or two. Um, you know, but I, I also know that I have a unhealthy pattern of working through symptoms that would tell most people to um, just let it go, just let the balls drop. And that's, that's a challenge for me. I, I think I've, the way I've dealt with, you know, my own childhood traumas and, and struggles is to develop a ultra reliability pattern and, and strong work ethic. So it's, it's pretty core to my identity. And so there's like some healing and untangling to do to be able to rest when it's time to rest and not feel like that um, sort of contradicts fundamentally who I am. I want to thank you for being honest. Cause I think I try to invite guests that I feel will be honest. And for some it's, it's easier to show up vulnerably and perfectly imperfect for others. And so I just want to honor you putting mm-hmm. that out there and saying, I'm doing all this work, but it does come at a cost sometimes, literally for me, physically even. I think it's important for Mm -hmm. women listening to understand that because I I feel like sometimes we get so caught up in the the Instagram version of ourselves, right? Like the the Facebook version of ourselves and we we stop being real people and we need to know that Mm -hmm. we need to make sustainable lives for ourselves. And that doesn't always mean comfortable lives, but sustainable, right? Like we can't do the work if we're in bed with a fever of 104. Right. And we're also worth more than our work, which I'm saying because my friends have told me this, not because I've yet internalized and believed it, but we're human beings, not human doings. And I have to, I'm trying to believe what they say that even if I never did another thing, like for the world, for the community, for my whole life, I would still merit the air I I breathe. I would still be of value just for existing, um, which is this sort of impossible concept, but I also think a really important concept because we've been so taught that our value comes from what we can produce and not just from being and existing as part of this intricate web of life here on earth. Um, so it's not just to survive to serve, but also to survive to be. Leah, I hear that and we must share a little bit of genetic code somewhere in our DNA because I feel like that's a lesson that I literally for years have just been chipping away at and trying to unpack, you know, balancing that with the the concepts of receiving and contribution and recognizing like, mm-hmm. ah, we are, you know, like, I think sometimes it's very, it's a very intellectual pursuit for me that like, ah, we are worthy of love, Mm -hmm. like just for being here. Mm -hmm. But like, what does that mean? And then it's, I feel like the message has made it to my mind, but not necessarily my heart or my gut quite yet fully. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm with you. (laughs) Yeah. So when you figure that out, I would love to reconnect and hear how you did that (laughs) as I still work on it too. Oh. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> I'll I'll loop back if I if I make any major progress too. <laughs> and I, I love the idea that you've built this council around you. Were there aspects or qualities of the people that you selected to have around you that you're you're now realizing like what a gift it is? Like if women listening were thinking of creating a, a council for themselves, like what has really worked well for you? 
Oh, interesting. So it wasn't like I started with a selection criteria and then went through my Rolodex or anything. It's really, (laughs) we do, it is actually called a council of friends and it's people who I feel like see me. So they see beyond whatever the images that other people have created of me. They see beyond my value of, you know, productivity equals worthiness. They care deeply for me and they're super smart. They're all brilliant folks who I, you know, respect their work and their being. And then I just asked and, you know, people are busy. It's not like they can always be there to help me deal with my own personal life. But I, I also noticed that it's a meaningful ask and people seem really excited to engage on questions of significance. I know I personally would be honored to be on a council of friends for, you know, a dear one and have been informally, you know, as, as issues arise for people. So yeah, try it. <laughs> I love the idea of it. And I also know you are a fabulously busy human being. I want to move to a question that I ask all of my guests, but I'm, I'm so excited to hear your perspective on this. We've covered a lot of points at a really high level. And so I guess, what do you most want La Vital Core Salon listeners to know or to take away from our conversation today? <laughs> I think that something we can all take away is this fundamental sense that we're really not alone. And what I mean by that is that, at least in West African cosmology, we believe that our ancestors are not dead and under the earth, right? They're in the fire, the water, the soil, the air, in our dreams, in our exhale. And they love us as much as, you know, the mothers who are listening and the the grandmothers who are listening love their children and grandchildren. Like they love us. They're rooting for us. They, they know us. And if we can awaken to that truth that we're so fundamentally not alone, we're so held, I think it really shifts the way we move throughout our days and the sense of meaning and connection that we can carry with us. So I invite folks to open their hearts to the love of their ancestors. How do you feel it on a regular basis? How does it manifest for you? Oh, often as intuition or dreams is one way. Um, for me, so I'll tell you a quick story. There's a, a young person, um, Dijor Carter, who came to the farm. He was like 12 or 13 when he came. Super skeptical about farming. You know, his first thought was slavery and getting eaten by a bear. So when we finally convinced him to get out of the van, he was then worried that his sneakers were going to get covered with mud. And so we convinced him to take off his sneakers for the tour. And, and he did. And, you know, squeals of delight and horror happened with the muddy feet. But when we finished the tour, he said, you know, something really weird happened to me. You know, as soon as my barefoot touched the earth, this memory of my grandmother came up like through my feet into my heart. And, you know, I was remembering being in a garden with her when I was little and holding a worm, and how much she cared for me before she died. And it felt like she was there, you know. And so for me, when my bare feet are on the earth, there's a lot of transmission of of wisdom and guidance and connection from my ancestors and from, you know, the earth herself, who we consider alive. Um, And it just reminds me that it's all bigger. It's bigger than the petty stuff that has me worried in the moment. It's all part of a great cosmic dance. Leah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) for being here. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> You're an amazingly gifted teacher. And I'm, I can't wait to follow like 
you onward and upward and, and see what you continue to impact and touch. And I think in some way from this conversation, like a, apply some sort of magic or, or spiritual touch to all of this. Truly honored. Well, thank you. Um, I very much enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate you uh, peeling back the veil to get at some real stuff. So thank you. It's Kara. I'm back with a couple quick notes. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. If you want to learn more about Soul Fire Farm, head over to soulfirefarm.org. It's that easy. And Leah and I mentioned a bunch of resources or references in this podcast. So I'm going to put all of those links in the show notes. And you can find those over at levitalcoursalon.com. L-E, vital, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. I really believe the work that Leah and the team at Soul Fire Farm are doing is really important. So I want to ask you, please share this with one human you know that might be interested in hearing what's going on over in Grafton, New York. And anyone who's dropped by Le Vital Core Salon in the past knows I couldn't do this without my amazing team. So thank you to Craig Snyder, who produces Darlene Victoria for helping me cross T's and dot I's all over the interwebs. And Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for my most excellent theme song. And don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.